Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 121 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Today's guest, Ivan, is a journalist. He has made his living writing about college football for many years. But recently, he has written something very, very different than what he normally has. Several years ago now, when Ivan's son, Max, was away at college, he died by suicide. To say that Ivan was unprepared to handle his son's death and the whole grieving process would be a vast understatement. Ivan would be the first to tell you that he knew nothing about grief. He, like many other people in our culture, just wanted to avoid grief and not think about it too much. When he met with a grieving person, he would politely ask how they were doing, but not go further than that. The more he began to learn about the grieving process and the healing that can come after death, the more he knew he needed to share that with as many people as he could. And the way Ivan shares is to do it through the written word. So Ivan wrote a book. The book is entitled, I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, a memoir of loss, grief, and love. You can buy this book at any of your local bookstores or online at Amazon or another online bookseller. Ivan's hope really is that he can teach people a little bit about grief so that they can support other loved ones when they are grieving. He also worked really hard to make this book not be just about sadness, but about life and love. He even promises me that every few pages, you will likely get a little laugh as well. Max is a kid that had a great sense of humor, and Ivan wants to make sure that that comes through as well. So for now, I know you will enjoy listening to me talk with Ivan, Max's dad. And I also know that you will really enjoy his new book. Thank you so much, Ivan, for agreeing to come on the Always Andy's Mom podcast. I really look forward to talking. Oh, I'm delighted to be here, and I'm sorry we're yeah. I'm yeah. sorry we have what we have in common, yes. but uh, I'm glad we're together. That's a good way of putting it. It is a club that certainly no one wants to be in, but once you're in it, you do appreciate everything everyone else who is in it with you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 They're nice people. Yeah. Right. So why don't you go ahead and just start talking a little bit and telling us about your son, Max? Sure. Max was our middle child between two daughters. He had two sisters. He was, in his his phrase, was comically tall. <laughs> and it wasn't so much that he was 6'5", but that he didn't weigh 140 pounds. I mean, he just was a big you know, a big head and a big pair of shoulders. And then it was just like a, you know, a stick figure below that. From the beginning, he was different. And, you know, we always use the word quirky. And at a very young age, he, we thought it was, he was precocious in the, because he had this ability to recite an entire Dr. Seuss book Mm -hmm. from memory when he was like 18 months old. Wow. And somebody, we have a neighbor who's a child psychologist who said, you you need to get that checked out. And it turns out that is a pathological trait, you know, of that something's going on. And and he was wired differently. He was somewhere on the spectrum. And and I'm not being coy in saying that that was the best, (laughs) it was about the best diagnosis we ever got. Mm -hmm. You know, he was not, did not have autism. He did not have Asperger's. He was just wired differently. 
He falls in that not otherwise specified category. That's what we yes. call it in medicine. It's what a delightful like, category yes, that is. It's like a learning yeah. disorder not otherwise specified or Yes, or that's like yeah. That. Mm-hmm. I remember that language. Yes. That's that's my language. I get that language. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and what does that mean? I mean, you know, he he didn't read social cues very well as a lot of those kids don't, you know, and, and consequently dealing with his peers was always a struggle. Mm-hmm. And he he was a loner and and part of that was because he couldn't communicate very well and part of it he was, you know, he was shy and 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 withdrawn. And you never know what's the chicken and what's the egg there and how much is nature and how much is, is, is what happened to him afterwards. But, you know, beyond that, he was really funny. He had a really quick, dry wit. And, you know, I, I say, and I have said this, I said it his whole life, I, the fact that he, I'm a sports writer, and the fact that he had no interest in sports <laughs> was proof that God had a sense of humor. Yeah. I actually thought that I should have introduced you and said like Roll Tide or something. I think that should have because I, yes, well, I know you're an Alabama guy. Well, I grew up in Alabama right. and I've covered college football virtually my whole career. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the last 15 years means I have covered a lot of Alabama. Yeah. But Max didn't care about Alabama. He knew it was important to his extended family. Right. For For his livelihood. For, yeah. Put the food on the table. Mm-hmm. You know, well, that too. But you know, he he like he went to a few Alabama games, but it was more to hang out with his cousins than it was because he had any interest in the game. Uh, so I had to figure out how to communicate with him somehow else other than sports, and and I I did it through humor. You know, I got him into the Marx Brothers and Looney Tunes at a very young age, and. You know, movies and Broadway. We live an hour from Manhattan, so you know we would take the kids to a show at least once a year, mm-hmm. and tried to connect with him the best I could. But you know, he because he was so shy. I mean, he was pretty open around us, but still, it was work, yeah. and it was a con- it was constantly work to try to communicate with him and in any meaningful way. And that was hard work for him too. It just, it, you know, wasn't easy for him. Yeah. It's really interesting that you say that because the one, one of the revelations I have had since I've really, since the book came out mm-hmm. and more over the course of writing the book. And now that I'm talking about it is I really realized how hard he worked mm-hmm. to live as long as he did. It was just, he tried so hard yeah. and I just didn't really put that together. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to say to him, every time you've needed to do something, when you, you know, when it really came down to it, you've done it. And, you know, you can do this, whatever it was. But it was just such hard work for him. And, you know, that's, that was just, he, he dealt, he dealt with depression most of his life. Certainly he was treated for it for years. And I don't remember when he began taking antidepressants. I know he began seeing a counselor, I think in middle school. Well, really, if you go back to it, he was in playgroups because, you know, at at a very young age to try to deal with learning how to manage his emotions and, and just, you know, exist in a better way. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was a battle. It was a constant battle. And, you know, and he, he fought bravely, yeah, but it finally just overwhelmed him. Do you want to go into that a little bit now as to what kind of happened with Max? Sure. So he was a junior at RIT in Rochester, New York, and, and he chose RIT because uh, my wife, Meg, has a brother who has a summer home on Lake Ontario, and we went there every summer. Mm-hmm. So he was comfortable there, and he had a lot of friends from online video group, his online video group that he used to play, I think it was Minecraft with. And, and so a, a couple of those people in that group were at RIT. So he chose to go to RIT. And he, as I said, he was on antidepressants. We learned after his death that he was using the mental health services on campus. He was overwhelmed a little bit yeah. by his 
studies, just really anxious that, you know, he wasn't going to succeed as a photography major. RIT is renowned for its photography curriculum. He wasn't going to be able to get a job. You know, he wasn't going to, going to be able to get an internship that summer before his senior year, the upcoming summer. These were just, these thoughts were bedeviling him. He was home over winter break that year. This was winter of 2014-15 and a little more subdued, a little more quiet than normal. Mm -hmm. And we read that as him sort of asserting his independence. You know, one thing about Max was emotionally he was younger than his age. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he got to things later than most kids did. And he's 21 years old and, and a little more standoffish. And we just thought, well, okay. He's finally getting to that point that most kids get to in high school where they push you away. And that's not what it was. Yeah. You know, we think in retrospect, that's when he was beginning to spiral away from us. So he had been at school about a month and he had, you know, been to the to the mental health center on campus. He had told them, you know, he was having thoughts about suicide, but they didn't sense any ideation. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't think, he, you know, he was talking about the future. Yeah. And that's a big sign. You know, if you're talking about the future, that means you see a future. So they were talking to him, but they didn't see anything. They felt that they needed to act upon. Mm -hmm. So again, in retrospect, he was either hiding from them or it was just the nature of this illness is it just came over him all at once. And there are a lot of answers, a lot of questions we'll never be able to answer. And I do have to say, you know, being a pediatrician and then talking to lots of, of people now, and when you deal with kids with suicide, it's not the same as an adult. And I say kids because really until about the age of 26, your brain is not fully mature. And right. so when you think about college-age kids, what do they do? They, they do risky kind of spontaneous things. They make spontaneous decisions and do things <laughs> without really thinking about it. And that yeah. can end up happening to kids when they get overwhelmed by these suicidal thoughts. They can just act and not really think about it. So I do feel like in some ways it's a little harder to totally predict who might be really at risk for suicide. It's different than an adult. I think an adult would typically stop always talking about the future. But kids are different with their brains. They, it can really change very, very quickly. So I would, I would guess he had a little bit of element of that too, right? He just, your mindset. Oh, changes. there's no question. I mean, we found he joined an online dating service in the last 48 or 72 right. hours of his life. Right. So he was whipsawing back and mm -hmm. forth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, now we found he had had an idea or a plan before he actually did it, but the weather was so bad that winter, he, you know, he couldn't, I think his car, he couldn't dig his car out. Okay, That's how bad it was. The, the first time he had the, that, you know, this is something I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. I'm going to act on this. And he couldn't dig his car out. So he didn't do it. This time he, you know, what happened was, a Monday night in February, we get a call, phone rings at the house, and it's the sheriff's department in Monroe County where Rochester is. And the deputy says, you know, a car registered to Margaret Murray, my wife, is in the parking lot at Lake Ontario. And this park where the parking lot is, there's a pier that goes out into Lake Ontario. It's about three quarters of a mile long. And that park and pier are a mile east of my brother-in-law's beach house or lake house. Mm -hmm. So I knew right where the, the deputy was talking about. I knew how cold it was up there because it was about pretty close to zero uh, that winter and that night, that period of time. And I knew what had happened. I mean, there was really no other logical explanation. And, and it was interesting. You know, we went up the next day and the police bent over backwards to say to us and said it multiple times, we're not going to make any assumptions until the evidence tells us that this is what happened. Mm -hmm. And in the outset, they kept saying to me, don't you think he and his friends could have just taken off in on a joyride, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, walkabout? Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, you know, Max was a rule follower, you know, and he, he didn't cut class. 
he wouldn't have gone anywhere. And those weren't the kind of friends he had. And that Max was not a partier. So it just didn't, there was no, there was only one logical explanation. And it took them a few days and they were going through his credit cards and then figuring out, you know, there was some evidence. Well, I'll tell you what happened. They had a scuba team He's going back and forth in the lake in 38 degree water and they're looking for his body. Wow. And from the water, they looked at the pier and, and on the ice below the pier, they spotted some of Max's belongings. So that's how we knew he had gotten that far. Mm-hmm. And so obviously, and you know, he had walked out onto the ice and, you know, you can easily surmise that he walked out until the ice gave way beneath him. But yeah. We, we don't know. And, right. and, and really, we never will. Right. Yeah. You know, they looked, the scuba team looked for three weeks mm-hmm. and spent a lot of money looking for three weeks and finally just said, you know, we, we don't know what else to do. And, you know, we, you know, we're just going to wait for the water to warm up. And there's no guarantee yeah. that the water, you know, will find his body then. It, it's, they basically they said he could have he could have gone far enough out that he wouldn't stay near shore mm-hmm. right and that unknown what i mean we knew it, you know you had to know he had to have died but yeah just not knowing whether you would recover his body was was torturous and 5 weeks later 8 weeks after he disappeared it was the third weekend in April, mm-hmm. um, Friday night, some Friday evening, some poor fisherman about a mile out from shore came across his body. He had come to the surface or his body had come to the surface. You know, that was uh, so. So we did get that closure, yeah. which was nice. Yeah. I was going to say that would be the, that would be so hard and good all at the same time. Right. It was. uh it was more, at least for me, and 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 let me reiterate. I should have said this. That I said, you know, this whole book is my story of my grief. Mm-hmm. It's not my wife. It's not our daughters. There was a sense of relief, at least for me, just you know, to have a sense of finality to it. Right. The interesting, we had already had a memorial service for him. You know, it wasn't like we were holding out hope that that he had gone on walkabout. But what was interesting was. Two weeks after Max disappeared, or excuse me, two weeks after we found his body, mm-hmm. my nephew was getting married. And it really sort of came to a, brought to a fore, a pivotal question in how we were going to grieve. And we had to decide whether we were going to go to the wedding or not. Right. And we finally, at, at my urging, the four of us went to the wedding and my point was why if we don't go to the wedding if we don't make ourselves available to what joy there is out there Mm -hmm. then we've lost again and if we don't go to the wedding then our absence will be a shadow over the wedding and and maybe that's maybe it wouldn't have been i don't know but i kept thinking you know for my nephew and his wife you know if they thought of the wedding, then maybe they would always think, well, you know, the, the Connecticut family didn't come. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want that to be, I didn't want that to be how we were remembered or how we were thought of. So we went and, you know, a lot of it was honestly was sort of fake it till you make it, yeah. you know, but the more I have thought about that, the more I, I think I just sort of knew intuitively that just because this really bad thing had happened to us, that there was no connection to what was coming Mm -hmm. and that really good things were going to continue to happen to us. We had that example right there, right then. And if we didn't take, you know, if we didn't open ourselves up to that, then, then we get, we lose again. And I just thought, why would we do that? Yeah. I, I, it reminds me, you, your train of thought that reminds me of me in that, I so Andy died on a Wednesday. We didn't go to church that next Sunday. But after that, I always had this fear almost of I need to keep going to church 
Because if I stop, I don't know that I'll ever go back. So sometimes I yeah. like, I need to keep doing these things, even though I don't feel like it. And I didn't yes. feel like showing up to church ever. I mean, mm-hmm. they were, they were yeah. very supportive, wonderful people. Our church was amazing for us. But did I want to be there? Nope, I didn't. But I showed up every week. And there were times when I would duck away and I would hide and I might go cry even in the middle. But I still showed up because I felt like I needed to do that. But then we've said so many times, I've said this on the podcast a lot, is that you need to give yourself grace to make different choices too. And so something like the wedding... You go to the wedding, but I hope you all had a little bit of a backup plan that if this is not going well, we've got this car and we can leave or we can step out for a little bit or we can, you know, come back and do things. Because I think giving yourself grace that you're not pigeonholing into this, like, I have to go here and I'm going to be stuck here is is difficult. Yes. No, and that's a great, that is a great point, Marcy. You know, you know I'm not sure that my... the. The wedding was in my nephew's backyard, and the reception was in the house in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure my wife didn't leave the house. You know, right. she found a corner of the house where nobody would come near her, and that's where she sat. And my sister sat with her most of the night. You know, God bless my sister. And, and I think that's so important to give yourself that little bit. I just had a conversation oh, yeah. with a mom that was feeling very pressured to go to Christmas, to go to Christmas, this Christmas celebration, because her kids really want her to go, the other kids. And she was feeling so pressured. And we were, I, I was just talking to her like, we need – if your kids really want to go, maybe you should go, but you need to get some sort of plan, some sort of thing where you can compromise and do what's best for you. And so that's what you sounded like you did as a family. You made a little bit of a compromise and that you all went, but she didn't participate fully. She was able to hold back a little bit to do what was comfortable. Yeah. Well, and and I had an early, early lesson you know, the, the first Monday that we returned home, uh, you know, we get the call on a Monday night. We spent the week in Rochester. We came home on Sunday. On Monday morning, my youngest was a senior in high school at the time. I said to her, go ahead and go back to school, mm-hmm. you know, because just get it over with. Get that first day over with, which was about 10 of the dumbest decisions I've ever made as a parent. Uh-huh. And, and, uh, I, because I, I can remember walking up to the door of the high school with her to sign, you know, kind of sign her in because she had been gone a week. And I was, and I'm thinking, I've got butterflies in my stomach. You know, why are we here? But, you know, I didn't react, I didn't act upon those. And she went in and she stayed about three hours and then she came home and she didn't go back for six weeks. And the reason she didn't go back for six weeks. Uh, to class anyway, she would go to lacrosse practice, was the principal of our high school. His daughter had ended her life 15 years before. And that first day, we went into his office, Elizabeth and I went into his office, and he looked, and I said, well, I had, you know, look, you know, she can only miss X number of days and still graduate. So I just thought, go, Mm -hmm. and and, because you got to graduate and you know and he looked at her and he looked at me and said I don't care if she never comes back come back when you're ready you'll graduate you're fine she had already you know she had already been accepted into a college by that point so she had a plan you know she was she had somewhere to go he said you come back when you feel like you can come back and don't worry about anything else which was such a godsend and also to your point sort of a lesson to me that there, there aren't a lot of rules here, societal rules that you really need to follow. You know, uh, I think with his dispensation <laughs> and Meg, Meg was spending a lot of time in Rochester with the police at that point, you know, as they were looking in the lake, you know, the, the two girls and I pretty much spent most of our time on the couch under blankets watching Gilmore Girls reruns. You know, getting up to open the, you know, when the doorbell rang, somebody was bringing food, I'd thank them, throw it in the refrigerator and go back to the couch. And that's, that was pretty much what our life was. Mm-hmm. Well, and that was okay. And, and I think it's easy to 
assume that what is maybe helpful to you is helpful to other people. I feel like my husband made a very similar uh, error in judgment than what you made and that he went back to work two, three weeks after Andy died, probably about three weeks after Andy died, and then was very strongly encouraging me, you need to go back to work. You need to go back to work. You just need to go back to work. Because it was helpful to him to get back to that routine. And and honestly, they were very nice to him. So he's an anesthesiologist. They didn't put him at the hospital with a million people. They put him in a little, little plastic surgery center where he took care of, you know, women getting tummy tucks and boob jobs for a few weeks that he only had to work with a very small group of people. He never had to see a kid. He didn't have to do anything. So they did really shelter him, but it was so helpful for him to have that. And it felt like a safe place to go. So he thought, Certainly, it will be helpful to you, too. Kind of not thinking about the fact that I'm a pediatrician who takes care of children, who will have to take care of children, (laughs) our kids, you know, Andy's age, and take care of siblings and look at these families and try to help them deal with problems that I no longer really think is a problem. And it ended up being overwhelming, couldn't do it. But you just feel like you know what you know. Yeah. How long before you went back to work? Right. Oh, how long before I did? Well, I went back originally about six weeks after. I cried between every patient. I lasted about four to five weeks. And then I took off the next year. So that's what ended up happening, you know? Well, no, yeah, no, I get that. And and there's a lesson in there that I talk about in the book about grief that Everybody does it differently, mm-hmm. and and that's okay. And the way it crystallized for us is Sarah, our oldest, who is really emotionally intelligent, was in San Francisco at the time. She had just graduated from college, and she she gets off the plane in Rochester, having taken a red eye, and we had already driven up, and we're about ten yards into the terminal, and she says, uh, "Are you guys getting divorced?" Because I read that half the parents who have who lose a child to suicide get a divorce. <laughs> I was like, "Whoa!" So I just said, "Let's let's do one disaster at a time, okay?" And, Although I have to say, the night Andy died, we were in the hospital, and my husband turned to me and said, "This will not break us." Yeah, well, and and Meg and I had said pretty much the same thing to one another, right. and. But what I learned, you know, David Kessler is one of the leading guys on grief in the country, and, mm-hmm. and he has written about this and, and said, it's not the loss that breaks a couple up. It's the they judge one another's grief. Yes. You know, why don't you go back to work? You know, right. why, why did you go back to work? You know, why do you cry every day? Why don't you cry every day? And Meg and I had a relationship where we we have accommodated each other from way back you know i'm from the deep south and i'm jewish and she's from upstate new york and she's catholic so we had a lot of accommodations to make uh before we ever got married we had what i called uh, we called a whirlwind six-year courtship you know as we tried to (laughs) work all this out Uh, so we that was kind of our mo and it really saved us you know i didn't Meg needed a roadmap of how Max had gotten to this mm-hmm. point yeah. of no return. Yeah. Yep. And I didn't. And that's a very common thing for mothers in general. When I've spoken yeah. with my grief counselor about that, is she says, moms need to know. They need to know. Yeah. And for me, I we were in a car accident and Andy was killed right behind me. But yet I have lost a half an hour of that time. And it tortures me that I don't remember the moment he died. And I don't oh. remember the moment. And it's just, it's something that moms yeah. just like feel like they need to know. You need to know every single moment and every single thing that happened. And it's something that in general, I mean, these are all generalizations and different people are different, obviously, but in general, it's not as important for other family members as it tends to be for moms for some kind of crazy reason. That's really interesting. It makes makes total sense, especially for moms and sons, you know, because she, you know, every kid's, are going to be closer to one parent than the other. That's just the way it works. And and Max, she could read Max better than I could. Yep. And from from day one, 
and uh, she needed to know. And I, I couldn't open myself up to that amount of pain, you know, but she needed to know. Uh, so um, I just said, do what you need to do. You know, put your hand on that stove every day. You know, if that's what you need to do. And, and it's uh, so great that you could be understanding of that because that you're right in that that isn't always the case and that I've talked to a lot of families and and people that like, why do you keep doing that? Why do you keep doing that? And really pulling back and having a lot of kind of tension between couples for that. Look, she went to a suicide survivor group faithfully for a couple of years at least. Mm-hmm. I went with her once and I just thought, I'm, I'm getting nothing from this. You know, she read books like the one I wrote, you know, uh, of people, you know, writing about whoever they lost. And, and I got nothing from that. You know, I, I benefited from just, I would open my laptop and just vent. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how I excavated my grief. I will say this, I had the great benefit, uh, a woman that i grew up with is a psychologist at Duke University School of Medicine. And she called me that first week and said, you will never, ever understand why he did this because you think rationally and that act by definition is an irrational thought. Mm -hmm. So you cannot understand this. And that Look, it may have been a get out of jail free card to absolve me of guilt, but I keep I keep it in my pocket to this day. And I think it makes total sense to me. And and she's a lot smarter on these topics than I am. So I said, yeah, okay, I get that. Yeah. And that is a beautiful thought to kind of keep coming back to because you do just feel like you want to know why. And then you have this guilt and then it just eats at you. So if you can be able to say, I just am not going to understand and I have to kind of get through that and accept that idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and along the kind of the same lines of what we were talking about with making yourself open to joy. Yeah. You cannot stay back where he, where he, where he stopped. And as much as you want to, you know, as, as comfortable as it would be to stay in that fetal position that you're in, uh, you can't do it. You know, your life is going to go on. And if you try to stay back there, you miss out on what's coming. Right. And so I just, you, you take of them what you can carry and you go on. And it's really hard to start with, but time is very helpful. And you know, you just, you don't have a choice, basically. You really don't. Right, right. There there are a couple things that I wanted to talk about that you had mentioned early on in the book. And one is about that, is about when people kept telling you how courageous you were. And I get that. (laughs) You're so strong. You're so strong. And the answer, of course, is, I don't have a choice. There, there is yes. no choice. You just get up the next day. It's not like I am choosing to do this. That's exactly it. So that thing of you're so strong or you're courageous, like, I I don't want to be actually, I want, I am weak and I am okay with being in my weakness, (laughs) but I am still getting up every day. That doesn't mean I'm like some amazing person. Well, and I, you know, I, I wrote an essay, Marcy, almost four years ago now, basic with the sort of the basic themes of this book. And I published it on medium and, and it, it really made a dent. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, it sort of took off on medium and they put it on their front page and they had me record it. And the later that year, the university of Georgia journalism school, uh, invited me to speak at a symposium on journalistic courage, yeah. you know, which I sort of guffawed at. Right. You know, I mean, I just, I said, and I went, when I went down there, I said, you know, courage, in, implies a choice you know, that you make this choice yes. when you don't have to make it. I said, this is not courageous. You know, I'm just telling you what my life has been like. And, uh, you know, the, that's, you know, there's no courage in that. I'm just doing it. So you will understand what this is like. And that, so that if it happens to you, 
or that it happens to a friend of yours, you might have a little better way of reacting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was it. But the, you know, the courage thing sort of, yeah, made me chuckle. Right. Right. Absolutely. And that is only true to say that you're courageous. If you say that every person who is suffering through grief and are suffering through some sort of trauma, if, if them getting up every morning is courageous to you, then okay, then I will accept that because that's how courageous I am is just still getting up and still doing stuff and functioning. But that is the definition for everyone. That's not unique to me. That's no, many, many people. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. absolutely. And, and it is really hard. Yes. And in that sense, you know, maybe you could convince me there's some courage involved in that just because it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. But again, you don't have a choice. But, right, so. but it's not unique to you or unique to me. Right, mm-hmm. right, 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 right. Yeah, terrific. Absolutely right. That makes complete sense. So the other thing that I that really resonated with me in the opening parts of your book is you talking about grief and what grief was to you. So early on, I, I didn't see a therapist right away. It took me a few months. But once I did start seeing a therapist, I remember very distinctly something that she said to me. And she said, your grief is not what holds you to Andy. Your love is what holds you to Andy. Grief is love with nowhere to go. It's you're yes. loving this person so deeply. And they're not there anymore. And so that's yes. what really that grief is. And that's what you talked about as kind of being behind the book and that revelation that you came to that grief is really love. So could you talk about that a little bit? First revelation I had that helped me with grief was understanding that it was not going to be something that I was going to get through. Mm-hmm. You know, my Meg said, my wife said, you know, we don't do prepositions. You know, it's not something you get over not something you get through. So understanding that was the first step. It was just something I had to get used to. Mm-hmm. And understanding that it wasn't anything I was going to beat. Right, right. You're not going to get past this, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. So that accepting that was a start. And then and then I would just sit here at my desk and, and you think about the nature of it, you know, and why is this so painful? And then I thought, well, it's this painful because I loved him this much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and as a journalist, you take concepts and you pare them down to as few words as possible. And, you know, it's like, well, the amount of grief I have is commensurate to the amount of love I have. Absolutely. Grief is love. And it's, it's grief is love for the person who's no longer there to receive your love. And, Wow, you know, once I sort of came to that conclusion, to that revelation, it really helped me carry it. Just the sense that this is why this hurts so much. And uh, there were a couple other little things that happened that helped me. You know, I read a poem by Edward Hirsch, who wrote a book-length poem in memory of his son who had died. Uh, his son was in his 20s, and he compared... Uh, grief to carrying a bag of cement up a hill that never ends. And that sort of was something else that made me understand, okay, you just have to get used to this weight. That's true. And yeah. And the other was just the, the notion just that I had to sort of the everyday nature of it, you know, just that, you know, over and over again, understanding that, okay, just get used to this. And, you know, it, it, that, that helped tremendously. Yeah. And I think that is something that uh, people who aren't grieving don't quite understand. I still think yeah. they feel like, you know, are you still, you're still doing this? <laughs> are you still feeling like this? Like there yeah. should be some sort of time limit. And and I think it's different for different people. Like some people feel like, oh, six months, you should be better, which I would say that's probably about the worst time because I think all the shock starts to wear off, but that's just what I'm thinking. And, you yeah. know, some people say, well, we'll give you a year. Some people might say, hey, we'll be really generous with you. We'll give you two. 
And <laughs> but then after then, you should kind of just be okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I, uh, I think my memory of that is, and, and this was really one of the main reasons. You know, I, I talked about explaining to people what grief is like, and 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 that maybe it would help them handle it. Well, I, part of my motivation in that was I was the worst. I was just scared of grief. I was deathly scared of it. And so once I went through it and I realized how bad I had been in dealing with grief, like, for instance, when my father died, and I was really bad at comforting people who were grieving. Uh, if I ginned up the courage to say anything, I would say it once and I would check that box in my head and I would never bring it up again. And the truth is you want to talk about the person who died. It's, it keeps them present, you know, especially with a child, you have a finite number of interactions and of memories. And if somebody can bring you a memory of theirs that you don't have, I mean, what a gift. Yes. Yes. We had a book party the night the book published uh, here in, in my town in Connecticut. And Max's fourth grade teacher came and told me this wonderful story about Max in the colonial play. You know, in fourth grade in New England, you do a colonial play. <laughs> and, <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> and, and, and Yeah, exactly. And, and shy, you know, scared of his shadow, Max was Patrick Henry. Wow. And, you know, <laughs> pounding his fist on the table and saying, give me liberty or give me death with such bravado that she said the whole class looked at him differently from that day forward. She said, as did I, you know, and, and we were like, wow, okay, Max, you know, good on you. And, and you know, I just swelled hearing that because, you know, it was a story I had about Max I didn't have before. Mm-hmm. I love those. I only rarely get some now, but when you do, it is just such a tremendous gift. You know, I, yes. I did that on the, I can't remember. I think it was a one year anniversary of his death. It was either the one year or two year. I think it was the two year actually. Now that I think about it, the two year anniversary of his death, I went on Facebook and I said, if anybody has any stories, I have had two years without any memories and I'd really like a new one, you know? Oh. And I got some that were, pretty cool and amazing that I hadn't heard before. And it was just, it was something that we read those, you know, just to kind of honor him a little bit. And it was a beautiful thing. So whenever, so this is now just to the audience in general, I have said this before, but if you have a memory of someone who has died that you can tell their family, they will love it so much. And they yeah. will probably cry just like I'm tearing up right now. But that that does not mean that it was a bad thing to do. It was an excellent thing to do. It was an awesome thing to do because now it brought them a, a little bit of life back to them for you. Oh, sure. I, yeah. I just read a, a – gosh, now I can't think of where I read it. I think it was in a novel I was reading. or No, it wasn't in it. Wherever, wherever it was, I don't remember. But the person said – Tears are not a signal of sadness. Tears are a signal of presence. Mm-hmm. And I Love thought, that. wow, that's that's really good. That yeah. is profound. And, and that's very helpful to me, who you know has trouble crying, and uh, that really resonated with me. Mm-hmm. So, tell us a little bit more about kind of the book, and um, maybe. Uh, where people could get it or kind of what's been happening since it's been published. Well, sure. The, uh, the name of the book is I keep trying to catch his eye and the published by Hachette it's available wherever you buy your books, you know, be that Amazon, Barnes and Noble books, a million and a lot of have appeared almost exclusively at independent bookstores and will continue to do that. I'm going to one tonight. It's really resonated with people who have read it. Uh, I have been struck by the almost universal acceptance of the message or, or understanding of the message. And people are scared of grief, as I just got through saying yes. I was. Yes. And, and that's sort of a universal feeling out there. But it really, at the end of the day, is the one emotion 
that we're all going to have to deal with if you live long enough. Yes. And uh, and this is sort of a the phrase I use in the book is is I am a docent through my grief in the hope that it will make it easier for others. And it's not a completely, there are obviously very sad parts of the book, but there's some pretty funny parts. You know, Max was funny and I am, I know enough uh, having written for a living for 40 years, I know enough to try to keep people entertained. (laughs) (laughs) There's a smile every few pages and it's been uh, it's it's been very interesting to see the response. I've been very uh, been delighted by it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think to my own grief journey, I guess you could say that when I after I started the podcast and really started my kind of mission to try to bring some hope and healing to grieving parents, I felt that how much that helped me. Like, for example, I told you I was I was off of work for a year. I went back to work two months after I started publishing the podcast because it really gave a kind of a purpose for my grief, something to do with my grief, something to almost do with Andy. And it allowed me to be able to open back up to that those other parts of my life a little bit. Oh, that's great. I think it I think it brings healing to other people. I know it does because I certainly get messages from other people that it does, but it has brought tremendous healing for me. So I was wondering if that if you had felt that that process of writing the book and sharing that has brought some healing to you as well. That's an interesting question and you know my answer all along Marcy has been that I I didn't write this cathartically and no. I didn't write it therapeutically. I feel like I had to go through all that before I was in shape emotionally to write. Mm -hmm. But in talking about the book and in talking to people and to readers about the book, you know, I have sort of figured some things out that I had yet to really understand completely. I'll give you an example. I was speaking to a, a suicide prevention foundation here in Connecticut a few years ago. And in the course of it, I said, I am a better person since Max died. And when I said that, I my stomach flipped, mm-hmm. and it was really, I really had trouble with I'm a with the idea of thinking I had grown from this, yeah. that I had somehow benefited. Because you don't want anything good to come from it in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, and, and as much as I would like to be the emotional troglodyte I was before he died. You know, if it meant he would still be here, that's just not how the equation works. There's no equation. And the fact is that I have grown from this. I'm a more empathetic person. I don't sweat nearly as much small stuff as I used to. I am a better writer for both of those reasons. Mm -hmm. I don't get as anxious at deadline as I used to. I take more time to understand whoever I'm writing about, and I just better at it than I used to be. And that, and I've sort of, in the course of talking about the book, I've made my peace with that whole idea and understanding, you know, somebody said it, well, it's a gift from Max and that's a little too treacly for me, but, but yeah, I would agree. But I understand that it's just, you know, life is how you respond to what happens to you. And this is how I have responded. And, and I should, appreciate that and not be and not be shy about saying it. You're right, though, it is a hard thing to kind of wrap your head around a little bit. But I've certainly experienced that post traumatic growth. I'm a better pediatrician than I was before. I'm definitely a more compassionate person than I used to be. And I used to be a pretty compassionate person because I'm a pediatrician, for goodness sake, we're all nice (laughs) people. But, but it does give you post traumatic growth. And I've not spoken to anyone, any bereaved person that didn't feel like, they had growth afterwards. Um, and when, when I talk with, there's an expert that I have on very frequently, Gwen, and she says 95% of people feel that way. And the little 5% that don't are the ones that are just so stuck that they just never let themselves get out of that just deep, deep sorrow. But the vast yeah. majority of people do experience that. And even though you might instinctively recoil from that a little bit it is something that eventually i hope 
everyone can embrace because you do want there to be, if possible, a little bit of goodness that can come from something so horrific. And well, sure. And, and it's sort of a corollary of, I can't stay back where he was, yeah. you know, so yeah. uh, you, you have to go on and it it's, sucks and it's awful and it's the last thing you want to do. But you, again, you're not, you, as with so much of what we've said here, you don't have a choice. Yeah. Oh, one more question that I had for you is that I know that my husband, certainly nobody really would go to him and speak very personal stuff in general before Andy died. But afterwards, people are much more open to speak with him about things that are tough and ask him some hard questions and just be a little more open emotionally. Have you experienced that too? Oh, well, sure. Especially over the course of the last few weeks that I've been. I was going to say, especially with the book, but I wondered if even before the book, if people were more open to you. Uh, yes, they were. Uh-huh. And, and what, and it really helped me heal. And especially those early days, people that I knew uh-huh. Uh, that I thought I knew would very quietly come up to me and say, I lost my brother right. or my father ended his life or my sister was murdered. And, and that, that helped me in the sense that I thought these people were quote unquote normal. Right. And yet they had had this trauma in their lives and they had figured out a way to yes. go on. That gives you hope. It gave me hope. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I would think of my father. Father died when my dad was 10. And I thought, well, my dad had a, you know, seemed okay to me, you know, so. Right. Uh, you know, all of that sort of thinking really kind of helped me put one foot in front of the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I am so glad that uh, you came on the podcast today to talk to us about this. I really appreciate it. Oh, and the book. I encourage all of you to go out and get the book. I am not through the book yet because I just got it recently, but I have been just loving what I've been reading so far. So thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.